Welcome to the Dark Sky Ecotourism Podcast. I'm Tony Johnston, host of this episode. Our Dark Sky Ecotourism Project involves creating content for European regions interested in developing their dark sky potential. The Dark Sky Project aims to empower training bodies and businesses in remote and European tourism destinations to seize a more equitable share of Europe's post-pandemic tourism opportunities. We're funded by Erasmus Plus, and we have partners from Ireland, Denmark, Portugal, Italy, and we're led from Haller University based in Northern Iceland. I invite you to visit our website at darkskytourism.eu to see all of our resources. In this episode, I'm joined by Georgia McMillan from the Mayo Dark Sky Park, which is located in the west coast of Ireland. And Georgia is a passionate advocate for dark skies. Welcome, Georgia, and thank you for your time and for contributing to this podcast. Thanks, so to, begin, to begin the podcast today, um, could you tell me a little bit about the history of Mayo Dark Sky Park and your role within it? Okay. Um, yeah, thank, thanks, Tony. Um, it, it's basically um, a dark sky park as opposed to other types of dark sky places um, designated by the International Dark Sky Association. And as a park, um, it is um, one, effectively one landowner. Um, so we have worked with the National Parks and Wildlife Service and made our national park in the area, which is called Wild Nathan National Park, a dark sky park. And um, this was, I suppose, driven by the community groups surrounding the national park uh, back in um, 2013 to 2015. Um, we had an interest in uh, looking at the National Park and seeing what merits it had uh, in the context of dark skies. And so we were successful and now through a partnership, now National Parks and Wildlife manage that dark sky park and they um, engage with the community through events and um, other initiatives to uh, promote dark skies and uh, tackle light pollution. So you, you got the designation in 2015, so you're about eight years into the... We actually got accredited in 2016. We had set up, formally set up our uh, community group in 2015, and prior to that it was research. Brilliant, so you're, you're, you're quite a bit into the journey now. What, what were the steps involved prior to the designation in 2016? Um, we were really looking at other models and at that time there was um, nowhere in Ireland that had been accredited. So uh, Kerry International Dark Sky Reserve uh, came into existence in 2014. Obviously they were working on it before then. Um, and the other thing about Mayo is this because we didn't have a um, an astronomy base here. We didn't have an astronomy group. So it was really through... Um, the, the idea of conservation and looking at models such as Galloway Forest Park in Scotland, which is the first international dark sky park in the UK. And um, at the time I was studying uh, as an undergrad with um, outdoor education. So it became a, a, a dissertation project to uh, research dark sky places that we could, we could look at as models and do a, a bit of a feasibility study. So what was really involved is first learning about it, what it all was and what it meant, um, what the potential was for uh, conservation and then tourism. That wasn't the initial driver, but obviously tourism came into it. Um, and then taking the measurements, then you have to find out how dark and does it qualify? Uh, and we kind of knew that would be the case. Um, it wouldn't be the most difficult place to qualify, but um, there's a lot of other things to put in place in terms of engagement and 
communication and um, and learning ourselves, which we're still doing. Yeah, and it's really interesting that you mentioned your undergraduate background there, because um, I suppose it's it's always very exciting to see a project that, that has a, a real world impact. So you must have been very proud of that um, while you were doing your degree. I didn't know where it was going to go at the time. It was um, it was a, you know an exploration really, and um, I just knew it was logical. It, it, we had the the national park. We had the I suppose the structure there that's important, the management structure, and we always looked at this as not just a an accreditation, but where it's going to go. And I think that's that's a very important piece of learning for any new groups is don't don't look at it as the end goal to get the accreditation. That's only the start of the journey. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is something that, that, that's coming up again across all of the case studies we're looking at, that it, it's a journey. And, and really, with the threat of ongoing light pollution, it's it's never really going to stop either, is it? No, no. And, you know, we we work so hard to tackle light pollution and you have to you have to be reasonable about it because um, it is a, you know, going back to, to saying it's a learning again, it is learning for the community on how to best use light, learning for the local authorities on how to introduce lighting policies and and even for the industry, I think the indus- the lighting industry is changing significantly in the way it's rolling out uh, different types of lighting. So, you know, they've moved from going full out energy initiatives, which, uh, as many people know now, LEDs at the at the um, high their highest energy efficiency level is means you get a very very bright white light, and that by itself is an issue for um, biodiversity and all of the other things, in hum- including human well-being and health. So there are lots of things that are changing. So we're trying to, I suppose, get involved in that and make sure we're part of discussions on lighting. And I don't think communities have really tackled that before. Mm. So, I mean, just back to your your, your studies, so you started off um, undertaking an undergraduate degree and, and this sparked some passion and, and interest in, in this. But you, you wear many hats, obviously, you're, you're, you're working in the area and, and you've continued this study on into postgraduate research, isn't that right? Yeah, it is. Uh, again, not, not planned from the start, but uh, it's just the way things happen. So I was, because I was doing an outdoor education degree um, initially, I then got into guiding, uh, tour guiding in the outdoors, uh, hiking guide. And because I did so much volunteer work at that time, I just... I loved the the idea of guiding people at night and bringing them into, you know, the environment that we now had, which was a, a dark sky park, and there was there was nobody here doing that. So, I suppose that's that's something I got into, and then I figured that really to to push it further, I had to take the study further, and and um, I was very lucky to get um, to get a scholarship through the research council. So. By having um, what was the, a contract role at the time, a sort of part-time role with the National Park, um, that allowed me to qualify for um, with my application to um, to get a, a PhD scholarship um, through um, the University of Galway and and in partnership with the National Park. So fantastic! So you're you're working in the University of Galway um, on a dark sky park in Mayo. And you have a background in adventure tourism and you're based, um, as I know, in a geography department and you have all these these wonderful um, passions for, for preserving the dark sky. Could you tell the listeners a little bit about the kinds of uh, places and opportunities that they would see if they visit um, Mayo and the dark sky park? 
Yeah, I mean, just to describe, I suppose, our, our national park, by we say half the park is after dark. Um, so by daytime, what you have is 15,000 hectares of Atlantic blanket bog. It's a mountainous region. Um, it um, is quite remote. It would be described as the most remote mountain range in, in the country, which um, by, by larger, larger countries is perhaps not that remote. But um, for us, um, there's quite a few inaccessible places by road. Um, which lends itself very nicely for the Dark Sky Initiative. It's surrounded by small community villages and towns, um, one of which is, is Newport, where I live, and that's about 20 kilometres south of the, I suppose, the darkest accessible part of the Dark Sky Park, where you can do um, short walks, anything from two and a half kilometre looped walks in the dark, which is very safe environment very um, by a river it's, it's very beautiful at night um, or you can be a bit more extreme and cut through the mountain range right through to the other side which is Bangor Eris on a, a, a route called the Bangor Trail which is um, I suppose an investment of time and commitment um, through through the bog the Atlantic blanket bog. Um, we also have in Ballycroy we have a visitor centre which is um, I suppose through the Dark Sky Initiative, it is extending its opening um, season. It used to close sort of the end of October uh, for the winter season. And now it's just getting a little bit um, longer and longer each year um, as we go on. So it really only closes for, uh, for December and January now at this stage. Um, but that is a, a beautiful place, a beautiful viewing area, cafe. That's, I suppose, the engagement part and where the, the visitor guides can um, give interpretation on the dark skies and light pollution and um, welcome visitors. Fantastic. So you're stretched out to being open for 10 months of the year now. Um, and I suppose that's one of the, the great um, opportunities for this, this form of, of tourism and, and um and getting people out and interested in, in ecological protection and so on. In terms of the park itself, what, what kind of flora and fauna would, would people expect to see? And what wildlife or native wildlife um, from Ireland would, would visitors hope to encounter or possibly get to see? Um, when yeah. It's always a tricky one, uh, especially for, from the night point of view, because most of the wildlife sees us a long time before we see it and is gone. Um, but um, we have, you know, the species that we have are, are the pine martin, which is um, the Irish for it is cockcrean, which is a tree cat. So it's um, it's like a, I suppose, like you could describe it as a skinny cat with a big bushy tail and a chocolate brown fur and a little white patch at the front. Um, and um, the uh, Pine martin is at the moment, um, I suppose, loved and, and dreaded by, by farmers, but I think it has an unfair reputation, but it, um, it is tackling some of our grey squirrels, which are non-native. So I think for ecologists and for uh, nature lovers, it's, um, it's more and more um, of a hero. And um, we have obviously badgers, nocturnal species badgers. There's bird life, um, so uh, woodcock and snipe, you'd see them. As if it's fluttering up as you as you walk the route um deer but again you know these are species that are very astute to um to our movements and our noise so they see us a long time before we see them we do hope in the future to have more trail cameras um around so that people can see through technology uh what's there and uh, through infrared technology but at the moment um it's only limited to, to certain areas with the ranges 
are fantastic and it's that opportunity for technological change that will bring some areas of the park to life exactly. but still preserving them and, and keeping them really really safe from from visitor impacts of course they're mm -hmm. very delicate places um as well so um i suppose just one thing to to, to say to people who are not from ireland or we have nothing that's going to bite you other than um in the summertime perhaps the the midge and the little uh, small midge insects but in the winter which which this lends itself to very well there's nothing that's going to come out and um no predators that are going to attack you so that's that's a plus i suppose <laughs> yeah and of course um we we can see Crowpatrick in the distance as well, the home of St. Patrick, who, who drove all the snakes away. So exactly, yeah. very, very safe, no nothing threatening. Exactly. So um, you, you mentioned about technology there. Could, could you tell me a little bit about the opportunities for technology in the future uh, in terms of, of dark sky tourism and, and visiting, I suppose, sensitive and remote environments? Yeah, I mean, we, we do have um, some longer term plans for um, a planetarium and an observatory to be built in the village of Ballycroy um, and um, with some ancillary um, I suppose, uh, facilities in the more remote parts. Um, so we want to make use of uh, the darker areas, but at the same time, we don't want sort of you can't you can't it doesn't lend itself towards uh, busloads of people coming in and out at night time. Um, so we want to make um, I suppose make it accessible without um, having too many people. So small groups in some areas and larger groups can be facilitated where the visitor centre is. And in the longer term, that's where the planetarium will be, which would be a great facility for education for both day and night time. Multimedia for an auditorium in, in this kind of remote region. We don't have anything like that at the moment. So it's very exciting for the future and for employment and for um, education, as I say, as well as tourism. Brilliant, yeah. And I, I suppose we've seen successes um, around the country with planetariums um, in Northern Ireland, um, in, in Armagh mm. in particular, where uh, it's been there for many years and, and has been, been doing really well. Um, just, just to, I suppose, stay on the same track around technology, but to, to shift it a little bit towards the light pollution issue, uh, what, what kind of initiatives are taking place out there at the moment in terms of how technology can help address the, the light pollution problem that we're seeing? Um, I suppose initiatives um, that we have, we, we're trying to create dark sky friendly um, towns and villages. So moving to the more urban area, um, the, the nearest town, as I mentioned earlier, was Newport. We, we've got a dark sky friendly um, project going on there. From technology point of view, um, I mean, do you, mean, do you mean lighting technology, that kind of thing, or? Yeah, I mean, I mean I'm thinking around, um, you know, new kinds of sensors, um, you know, mm -hmm. maybe mobile lights and so on that will will will, will point in safer directions and so on. Um, is is there much uh, scope for incorporating any anything like that around the margins of the park, for example? Yeah, I mean, there's certainly for for waymarked uh, routes through um, low level lighting that would um, be sensor led. Now we haven't got it yet, but we do have um, some people looking into that. For but we do have to be careful because I think lighting is catching. So you know, once you put it in somewhere, suddenly it's seen as oh, that's a good idea, and mm. um, you know, it, it's uh, it's everywhere. Whereas one of the beauties of what we have now at the moment in the more remote places is it is dark and there's no getting away from that. It's very dark and people have to get used to that rather than us bringing our 
technology into it, if you like. So that's why I, I want to, I suppose, focus on the urban areas that need reducing light rather than the rural areas that need to increase light. If you know sure, yeah. So just, just about, it's about keeping it simple and, and not bringing it in in the first place. Uh, it yeah. makes, makes an, an awful lot of sense. Um, and moving back to uh, one issue that you raised earlier that was really interesting was around opportunities for, for tourism businesses. What sort of opportunities has the designation of Mayo Dark Sky Park opened up uh, in recent years? And what kind of opportunities might come in future? Yeah, the, the reason I'm asking this question is around some of the examples we've seen from our partners in the project around Europe, where we've seen interesting activities like nighttime kayaking and, and yoga and forest bathing and mm-hmm. so on. What, what unusual activities have, have cropped up in Mayo since the designation? Yeah, I mean... Already, I suppose we on a small scale. Um, my partner um, runs a little business, and he's he's tapped into um, gastronomy nights and astro- gastronomy and astronomy nights, um, and I suppose guided small group guided tours, um, which includes storytelling and walks and moon wa- moonlit walks. Um, he has looked at um, kayaking. Our insurance companies are. I suppose a little bit prohibitive on some of those activities at night, but um, there are places um, further in Cork where they, they do um, moonlight, uh, sorry, after dark uh, kayaks, which I think are very successful with the bioluminescence. Um, I think that's a lovely experience. Um, yeah, there's there's a lot of potential uh, just through being creative and thinking, you know, we don't have to stop activities because it gets dark. So almost anything you do during the daytime can be transferred into a nighttime environment if you think about it so yoga is definitely one and and you've already mentioned forest bathing um so i think hotels and accommodation providers to be involved in that and to i suppose get them thinking more creatively themselves so they can do packages where they can you know work on local providers and and get some unique initiatives like you know just nighttime picnics or music after dark we we do um here we have a festival every year which is the the mayor dark sky festival in november that's been very successful with engaging communities to come up with i suppose different themes through it's not just about stargazing because we have the cloud cover to to contend with here so um there's photography classes um uh shoreline walks um even I suppose bringing nighttime and daytime into it so you've got something for for all the family so you might have a seashore safari and a dark sky safari so you know there's a fantastic yeah. really some great innovations there uh, could could you um maybe give a plug there for the the website for your um your partner's business the yeah it's um, um terraformerireland.com and you and you said gastronomy and astronomy yeah gastronomy and astronomy and fantastic. dark sky safaris he does and um Great mix, brilliant. Um, the the um the other thing that I know that you, you work on very actively with the the dark sky work is your your women in dark skies um series. Could you tell me a little bit about the speakers that you have on that and and future developments for it? Yeah, it's it's just really partly because um we wanted to have an online. This is online only. We do a lot of um I suppose community led uh, local initiatives, but we wanted to widen the reach and um just through my my own dark sky network i started noticing that nearly everyone i was dealing with was uh, you know a woman in dark skies and i just thought there's something interesting in that in itself you know what is it about dark skies that attracts such a lot of women and i think that that 
deserves a bit of a platform to to hear from them and there's I've had in the past um Dr Hannah Dalgleish an astrophysicist we've had um Sibyl Schroer from Germany who's an ecologist um we have um, a lawyer uh, for our next one, uh, Jana Yakushima. Um, she's based in Belgium and she's working on legislation, which I think is really important. Um, I mean, we don't have legislation here in Ireland for light pollution. So I'm very keen to hear, hear how you know, her work's progressing, but also um, who else have we had? Um, Teddy Huang, uh, who's a flautist and astrophotographer and advocate for dark skies you know, and lighting designers, uh, Etta Dannemann from Germany. So we've had a lot of people who are proactive in very different ways. Uh, Diana Belajek from mm -hmm. Serbia, who's done um, Pape uh, Noctem, the, um, again, quite a community-led initiative where they take people out on night hikes and get people used to walking in the dark and exploring the dark. So um, I hope that theme, we, we don't do it every month, it's probably every couple of months two or three months um but it is building up quite a following and i think that shows the this was the interest in in women and, and the work that women are doing in in dark skies internationally tremendous and it's it's really interesting to hear the, the same problem or theme being looked at through so many different lenses you have law and environmental studies uh, astronomy and physics um photography arts and culture uh, it's it's a really exciting field. Um, a final question, I suppose, for you just um, before we, we wrap up was uh, one of the things that's really caught my eyes around dark sky preservation and so on are the various indicators and how we measure the, the problem um, of light pollution and how we measure the benefits. Um, what, what indicators are we lacking or what do we not know, what do we need to know in Ireland to make this better? I think it's one of those that we, we don't know what we don't know. Um, we um, we use a lot uh, the the satellite mapping, so the uh, lightpollutionmap.info, just to give us an idea of, firstly, at a, at a glance, what's what's good and bad. But on the ground, you know, light pollution is changing so much. And one of the issues that um, uh, researchers like Miguel um, Sanchez do, sorry, uh, Alejandro um, Miguel de Sanchez has come up with is um, that a lot of the light that they're tracking from satellites is not visible um, from from there because it's blue light and the satellites are not able to detect it. So we're not even getting a quantifiable picture from from satellite. And um, others like Chris Kuiper have done um, a, pro a project called uh, Night Lights in Germany where. Uh, citizen science really and I think that's it's the combination of citizen science and uh, technology to help us measure what's really happening on the ground and what you can visually see and night, night lights was all about that getting people out walking around in their locality at night and physically tagging every time they saw a light what type of light was it what color was it what size was it what's it coming from is it commercial is it public lighting because here in Ireland we can say very easily okay public lighting we know already is on every night, all night. And I think we're one of the few countries that assists in doing that. Um, and we know we have about 600,000 streetlights, but what we don't know is all the commercial lights that's, that are popping up and that's growing rapidly. The residential lights and the cheaper you make lighting, the more of it, we're instead of saving energy, we're just buying more of it. Um, so 
these we really need I suppose policy and, and legislation to stop the emissions of light not just to make it more energy efficient um, and I think and, and obviously we've just come through a, a or we're, we're we're still in the midst of a, a very significant energy crisis with with really high prices for electricity is there any anecdotal evidence of of lighting improving during this period improving uh not that i've seen no not improving no it's it's only getting worse because we're making it we're making the light cheaper to run yeah so as long as we keep doing that um we're only going to spread light pollution we might it might cost us less per unit but we're still so it's costing us less per unit and, and the the actual installation of of it and the purchase of the the hardware itself is is cheaper than it's ever been as well i mean you can buy something that would flood lift your garden for 15 yeah, 20 euro yeah it's for nothing and and i suppose one thing that is very worrying is um whereas it's very positive the growth of renewable energy for almost every other factor if you think about it in terms of light pollution the moment we have fully renewable energy light pollution is going to be shocking unless it's um cut at emission levels so unless we really tackle light emission and not just energy um because the moment it's free we're going to we're going to see a lot more of it and i'm detecting from you that we need a combination of education and possibly some litigation to to manage this I think so. I think it's the only way we need, you know, national policy and and uh, legislation. Well, perhaps through uh, the work that people like uh, Jana is doing, um, we might get some European-wide legislation that would help us. Yeah, and of course, incentives as well. We can clearly see the opportunities for, you know, different forms of uh, activities to, to to develop, such as astrophotography and, and nighttime safaris and so on. So, um, George, I'll just give you the last, the last, um, the closing statement as well. Just to, if you'd like to to say anything about enticing visitors to to Mayo, um, please do. Yeah, absolutely. If I can do a plug to our festival, Mayo Dark Sky Festival, um, in November, um, we'd love to see new faces and um, and if there's anything we can do to to help other places, um, we're happy to do that. It is something that I think is is a very nice. Thing about the dark sky family um that um, there's a lot of supports there between one place and the next so best of luck to anyone that's looking into it thank you very much georgia okay thank you